Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture reading this evening will be taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Please be seated. As you know, yesterday we laid uh, Mari Bayhan's body to rest. The Maple Hill Cemetery. And before that, we had a funeral service. And for those of you who have heard Mari's wonderful stories, the outhouse story was told. And if you don't know what that means, I'm really sorry for you. You come see me after worship and I'll tell you the outhouse story. And I promise, I promise Reader's Digest has never had anything to touch this. And some discussion was made about some things about the war, World War II, in which he flew a bomber. And, and those stories are just uh, amazing. And what a great man. I was telling Cindy that when we came to West Huntsville 20 years ago, Mari was already an old man. No offense to those of you who are 80, but he was already 80. And uh, he was just a man who was old for a very long time. And we really loved him. And, and Mari Bayhan is going to be missed. And won't it be wonderful to go to heaven one day and to, to be where Mari is? Tonight we're going to do Q&A. And I have a, a peck of questions here. And I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but we're going to get to as many as possible. I want to thank you, all of you who have submitted questions for participating. Thank you for doing that. And let's get to it. <clears throat> this one... Uh, is is really simple. Looks like it might have been written by a teenager. I'm not sure. Almost never do I have a name on a question, and that's fine with me. People can just keep their anonymity, and that that works all right. Is God a man or a woman? And then this line: We are made in His image. Well, there there are a couple of things that I think are interesting to mention about this, and one is that. We live in a time of gender fluidity, as you're well aware. And it's not so terribly uncommon for, for the people who think in very liberal concepts and always breaking away, away from the moorings. Conservatism says we ought to preserve things that have been held strongly for the, from the past. And liberalism says what we should do, anything's new is better, and what we should do is change because new is always going to be better. And, I think questions like this come from that. 
couple of times in my life, I've heard God referred to as a woman. And that, that's done by people who either don't appreciate the Bible or don't know the Bible. Because there's no ambiguity about this in Scripture. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he taught them, you pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Never mother. And if you want to know something really interesting, just Google about um, evidence in Scripture that, that God has a feminine side or a woman's side. And, and I, it's not so uncommon when things come up like this that you research what the arguments really are and then it substantiates your faith and your position because the arguments are so, in this case, ludicrous. Well, for example, I mean, I, I shouldn't tell you that. You make up your own mind, but here's a smattering of them. God is feminine. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the Bible says that people were born of God. And that must be, mean something feminine. Acts 17.28, for in him we live and we move and we have our very being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. I'm not going to go on with that because I just, that's, uh, it always feels blasphemous to me to talk like that. Okay. Uh, these are, but anyway, these are some of the arguments. What, what they do is to take uh, simile illustrations in scripture. They stretch real far to try to suggest that God could have a woman side or a female side. But now this thing about how we're made in his image is a very interesting question. In what sense are we made in his image? That's a good question. I, I, would, I would say a couple of things. First of all, it's not physical because God is not a physical being. God is a spirit, right? John 4 and 24. It's not physical. But, but I would also suggest that you, you think about that this is said in Genesis chapter 1. Here's verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Now, hold that, because 25, that, what I just read, that's about the creation of the animal kingdom. And then in contrast to that, he says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, created them, and God blessed them. I just want you to see that, that this statement that God made human beings in his image comes on the heels of the animal creation. In contrast to that, he says, we want to make man in our image, and I want them to have dominion over the animals. The humans aren't not spiritually speaking, are not animals. We're different from them. Now hold that thought and think about what it means that we are made in his image. We have self-awareness. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Psalm 8.4. You never saw an animal ask that question about, uh, you can't have cattle, but they're never going to have that kind of self-awareness. We're different from animals. We are eternal beings. Our souls will exist forever. 
We have choice and rationality and reason. We're different. We have a conscience. We have, we have a code of ethics about us that, by the way, is true even among people who are atheistic. You can deny God's existence, but we have rather universal principles of right and wrong that are so pro- pronounced, so very true. The, the, the guys over at Apologetics Press will argue, for example, would it be wrong to, to have children for the express purpose of sexually abusing them? That one always gets me. You can't imagine anyone saying that'd be all right. Even people who don't believe in God have some sense of, at least typically would have some sense of ethic or morality about them. Well, where did they get that if we didn't come from a moral God? We were made in God's image, and so we inherently have ethics or or morality. We have a sense of the eternal. I would argue that human beings have a sense of, of eternity, whether or not we understand anything about it. We, even people through the ages who haven't believed in God or served God, have believed in eternality. So, let's go to the next one. This one's also from Genesis. This one's interesting, and this is in chapter 1 of Genesis, beginning about verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness and called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Then you get down to verse 16, and maybe you've thought about this question before. It's pretty interesting. He says he made the sun, moon, and stars in 16. In other words, in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and so there was light. And then after that, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So the question is, what was the source of the light in verse 3? Before we, we think about the illuminaries, what, what, what was the source originally of the light? The answer is, we don't know. We, we, don't, we know that God made it, but what it was, we don't know. I will give you this interesting detail. Verse 4 says, God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Well, I don't know just what God did to create that light, but I do know that it was fixed in such a way that as the earth turns on its axis, in relation to that light, you had day and night, right? It's pretty interesting. Number next. Can you forgive yourself? Well, I, I think... I think that completely depends on what you mean by that. If you mean, if I sin against a person, am I, am I able just to wash that away, forget that, if I just forgive myself? The answer is no. And I think this is really important to appreciate, and I don't really think that's what the quester is asking. You can't just skip over. Matthew 18 talks about if, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him, his fault between you and him alone, and if he hears you, you've gained your brother. So if that, that thing is made right, but who is it? with whom must the forgiveness be arranged? And the answer is the one against whom you committed the sin. He's going to have to grant you forgiveness because it's against him that you sin. And get this, please, that all sin is ultimately against God. And so all sin ultimately has to be forgiven in the heart of God if it's to be forgiven. But I doubt that's what the person's asking. I think what the person is asking is, can I forgive myself when I carry, even after being forgiven by God, and I carry the, the weight of the guilt of what I have done? 
can you forgive yourself that way? What's interesting to me is that the Bible doesn't speak much to this. I don't think of a passage at all that directly relates to our psychological, emotional, being able to, to declare myself forgiven. I do know the Apostle Paul wrestled hard with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Come on, Paul, you're the Apostle Paul. He still is remembering. It's still hard for him. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he added this tag, of whom I am chief. He was writing by inspiration when he wrote that. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ when he wrote that. I'm chief. I'm, I'm chief of, of sinners. What the, what the scripture does do is to reassure us of the forgiveness and mercy of God that can be obtained through the cross. And then it rather leaves it to us to be able to forgive ourselves. It's, it's really not so much about that. God's a merciful God. It's not that he doesn't care about our emotions, but the fact is that sometimes after I'm through with sin, in some ways it's not through with me. And I don't mean to be unsympathetic about that. I just mean to say that the way God helps us with forgiving ourselves is by reassuring us that he has forgiven us, which, of course, is the ultimate forgiveness. Next question. Is DNR, do not resuscitate, the same as suicide? No. Suicide is the deliberate taking of one's life. I want to end my life and I, I take steps to bring that about. Do not resuscitate is simply to say that if I come to a position by some terrible accident or perhaps some illness that is brought me low, there's a point at which I don't want extraordinary medical technology to be used to try to keep me going. And I believe those are two very different things. And, and sometimes I think that people do their children a great favor. Whichever way is your feeling about DNR in reference to you, isn't it good to let your, I mean, on paper, to let your children know and to have the documents properly signed so that, that all the weight of these kinds of decisions aren't on their shoulders when the time comes. This is, this is what I wish. This is what I wish. That's a good question. All right, next. A man's wife commits adultery. He tries to forgive her and continues in the marriage, even has children. However, he has suffered every day of his life with the hurt, mistrust, and the fact that she broke her vow to him and God. <clears throat> it is a burden he carries every day, a hurt that never heals. Can he divorce her? And the, quest, the quester means, can he divorce and remarry? What the question really means is, from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, whoever, whoever should put away his wife, except it be for fornication, for the cause of fornication, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her, which is put away, commits adultery. Can he divorce her? Has he given up his right to divorce because he remarried in the marriage, or I'm sorry, he remained in the marriage and even had children, a statute of limitations, if you will. I'm going to give two answers to this, and, and they won't be contradictory. And the first one is that I do believe there's a circumstance under which a person 
who has been sinned against this way can say to his spouse or her spouse, whichever the way it is, I, I, I want to make a go of this marriage with you. I'd like to remain in this marriage. I do love you, even though you have committed adultery. And, and so I, I want to try. I just want you to know, I don't know if I can do it. I, I don't know if I can be successful in this. But if you're willing on that basis, I'll try. And it seems to me that, that they could reconcile, and in fact... That offended person, that offended spouse, may just learn that he or she can't do it. I just can't bear it. And still divorce and do so with God's approval based on the fact that he would still be putting away his spouse for the cause of fornication in every respect of the term. It would be for that reason. And now number two, and this number two starts with the word, however. However. Uh, the way this question is asked, and I, I don't have any idea who wrote it, and that gives me freedom. Uh, however, the answer to this question is certainly not. Because, because what happens is you stretch the logic too far to where it just breaks. The very idea that, that you that you would figure this out years after this and after you've, you've had children together. I'm going to tell you what you cannot do. You can't play tricks with God about this. You can't, you can't manipulate this matter or massage this matter in such a way that you can say, I can make it for fornication. I can make that. In this case, it, 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 is, it is too big a stretch, I would argue, that you stayed with this person, you reconciled, but then you continued on and you did, did ch- you had children together. And then you still want to say, I want to put you away for this. I would argue that the infidelity of a spouse, listen closely, cannot be used as a get-out-of-jail-free card that you put in your hip pocket and when you're ready, you pull it out. That cannot be true. It's not consistent with the wording of the text. All right, number next. This is about baptism, and, and we've talked about this a time or two before, and anyway, here it is. If an individual, a female, wants to be baptized, is it okay for a female to do the baptism if no males are around when it occurs? Let me answer this first of all by saying that it doesn't make any difference spiritually about, about who baptizes you. I mean by that, the spiritual strength or weakness of the person doing the baptizing has no impact on the validity of that baptism. Now, this is so important to get. If it weren't that way, what it would mean is that if, if a man is a gospel preacher and yet he's living damned and nobody knows it, He's got a double life. He's compartmentalized this righteous side, but he's got a very dark side. He's living away from God and he's lost, but nobody knows it. Then all the people he baptizes during that period of time, because he was not a a person who could do the baptizing, just nobody knew it. 
Does that mean that all those people have invalid baptisms? All those people are lost because he was lost? Well, that can't be true. The fact is that the validity of a baptism has nothing to do with the righteousness or unrighteousness of the person who's doing the baptizing. And I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But what about this question? And, and uh, the person who wrote it, don't know who wrote it, but the person who wrote it um, framed it in such a way that there, there are no men around. And, and my answer would be that I, I can't go to Scripture and uh, cement this down and say it has to be a man. I am troubled by the fact with this question, that every time you see a baptism occurring where we have the specifics laid out, it's always a man doing the baptizing. It always is. I I would urge this, this, and I could put, put my finger right on it. In every baptism that we conduct, I would urge that we find a man to do it. <clears throat> In those unlikely and rare occasions when we can say, we, we don't have a man to do this. And, and that's where we are. I would much rather that woman be baptized by a woman than to not be baptized. And, and so, so there you are. So there, there you are. It's, it's, it's kind of like, not exactly like, it's not exactly a parallel, but what I said a while ago is that if a person... The person's faithfulness who's doing the baptizing doesn't influence the validity of the baptism. But I'll tell you this, if, if I was being baptized and I had a choice between a man who was a faithful Christian and one who was a reprobate, I'd want the faithful Christian to baptize me, wouldn't you? Despite the fact that I know what I just said is true, I'd still, I'd still want that. All right, here's the next one. How should we view the baptism of fire in Matthew 3? Matthew 3, 7 through 12 discusses the Pharisees approaching John while he's baptizing by the Jordan. Verse 11, he says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And uh, probably do us well to turn over to Matthew 3. I've always read the fire to be punishment of eternal hellfire after death. This seems to fit with the next verse and other judgment passages, such as the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. <clears throat> However, we read in Malachi 3, 1 through 3, that John will clear the way before the Lord, and the Lord is like, quote, a refiner's fire to purify the sons of Levi, and etc., speaking of those entering in his kingdom. Fire is often referred to in the Old Testament as a symbol to refine God's people, Zechariah 13.9, Isaiah 48.10, and etc. The New Testament writers refer many times to the fiery trials proving one's faith and through which one, one must endure for salvation, 1 Corinthians 3.13, and etc. The apostles certainly experienced these trials in great measure, even to death, as they did the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2. It's a great question, and, and this person obviously has really studied this question. Uh, but the answer is no. I do not believe that, that in Matthew 3 the reference is to a refiner's fire or to a fiery trial to prove one's faith. 
bear in mind that that wasn't the purpose of this fire. This is something distinct from that, different from that. In verse 7, it says, John the Baptist is speaking, and he says, Who has warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come? Flee from the wrath of God to come is a threat. It's very much like Jude 23. Some save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. It would be to, to warn them that they're going to go to hell if they don't change the way that they're living. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come? And then verse 12 says, and again I'm in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, and, and the person asking the question referenced this. John said, when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then it says this, his winnowing fan is in his hand. You know, you, you don't, well, we don't use winnowing fans, but when you had, had grain and it was dried, and you'd put it in this circular kind of a fan and you would toss it up into the air and the breeze, the wind that was blowing, would separate the chaff from the actual seed and the chaff would be blown away, and they'd, they'd sweep that up, and then they would burn it. Here's the illustration. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff, get this, with unquenchable fire. There is only one unquenchable fire, and that's hell. Only one. And so... I think this is a very interesting question, and I think, I think uh, I've never thought of it before, and I do see the similarities in the prophecy, but the answer is that in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is talking about hellfire. Here's the last one. Why did God, I've, I've never thought about this one, so I'm really glad to get it. It's very interesting. Why did God use food to remind us about Jesus' death? Okay, I'm going to let you think about that for a minute. Why did he do that? And the answer is, what do you suppose he might use instead of that? And why do you suppose he would use something of a food item that is grown? I mean, in both cases, it's something that is grown. What would you use? If you, what if it was up to you, what would you use? Maybe you would say on the first day of the week you need to hold a piece of the cross, a little chunk of the wood from the... Well, that won't work because it'll be gone soon. And besides that, there wouldn't be enough to cover the whole earth and all the churches. And What would you use? Can you think of something tangible that, that would be, uh, I don't know, silver or gold or, or what would it be? He wanted there to be something that we used for this memorial. I'll tell you the, the credentials of the thing. So when you're thinking about what the answer is going to be and what you would use, it's got to be something that is perennial and universally available. Right? Perennial and universally, because, I mean, it's got to span. Now we're doing 2,000 years. We're over 2,000 years since the Lord's Supper was instituted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> what are you going to, it's got to be perennial, and it's got to be something that, that people can have all over the world. And you know the answer is the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. Something that is grown. Something that is the product perennially. It's a perennial thing. It's grown all each year of, of, um, in farms. And 
And the metaphor that Jesus uses, back to our discussion this morning about metaphors, is, is this is my body. This is my body. I'm so glad that you're here and our time is up. And thank you for participating in questions and answers. I always enjoy doing it with you. Don't you love to study the Bible? Don't you love to think about the Bible? We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.